0: You know I like C.S. Lewis, I like The Chronicles of Narnia, Um, and this, I want to read a quote, but it needs a little bit of setup. So how many people have not read The Magician's Nephew? Okay, so there's a bunch of people haven't. so I need to do the background. So The Magician's Nephew is the sixth book in the series, but actually chronologically it's the beginning of Narnia. And this boy Diggory has a wicked uncle who's a magician who's Discovered these magic rings that can take you into other worlds. And well, he actually doesn't know they'll take you to another world. He tricks Diggory and a friend into trying them on, and they they boom out into another world and end up first in a world where there's this this wicked witch who's been sleeping, and and they inadvertently wake her up and bring her back into our world where she's doing battle with uh, the London police, and um, you know they're trying to get her out of this world. It turns out if you have the ring and you touch somebody else at the same time that you touch the ring, everybody goes. So. She's in the middle of beating the police over the head with a pipe that she broke off of a lampstand. Um, and they touch her and boom, they go out of the world and they end up in Narnia, just as Aslan is creating it. Um, so they come into this world that's dark and empty. and. don't know, Aslan is the the Christ figure and and it's dark and empty and all of a sudden this lion, Aslan, appears and begins singing and and stars light up and the sun bursts into being and there's these lumps on the ground that pop up that that burst into elephants and tigers and and all kinds of things. You know, just life is is coming to life all around them. And um, the, the children are enthralled with the song that he's singing, but His wicked uncle who came along, um, Uncle Andrew, and the witch are all angry and and horrified by the song. They hate it. And ultimately, the witch takes this piece of metal that she'd broken off the the lampstand in London and threw it at the lion, trying to kill him. And it just bounces off, and he keeps on singing, so she runs away. Um, And that's the setup. So all of a sudden, Diggory noticed something strange, and... um, it, it says, Diggory says, Hello, what's that? Said Diggory. He had darted forward to examine something only a few yards away. I say, Polly, he called back, do come and look. Uncle Andrew came with her, not because he wanted to see, but because he wanted to keep close to the children as there might be a chance of stealing their rings. But when he saw what Diggory was looking at, <clears throat> sorry, even he began to take an interest. It was a perfect little model of a lamppost, about three feet high, but lengthening and thickening in proportion as they watched it, in fact, growing just as the trees had grown. It's alive, too. I mean, it's lit, said Diggory. And so it was, though, of course, the brightness of the sun made the little flame in the lantern hard to see unless your shadow fell on it. Remarkable, most remarkable, muttered Uncle Andrew. Even I never dreamed of magic like this. We're in a world where everything, even a lamppost, comes to life and grows. Now I wonder what sort of seed a lamppost grows from. Don't you see, said Diggory, it's where the bar fell, the bar that the witch tore off the lamppost at home. It sank into the ground, and now it's coming up as a young lamppost, but not so very young now, for it was as tall as Diggory while he said this. That's it. Stupendous, stupendous, said Uncle Andrew, rubbing his hands harder than ever. Ho, ho, they laughed at my magic. That fool of sister of mine thinks I'm a lunatic. I wonder what they'll say now. I've discovered a world where everything is bursting with life and growth. Columbus? Now they talk about Columbus. But what is America to this? The commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old scraps of iron here, burium, and up they come as brand new... excuse me, railway, engines, battleships, anything you please. They'll cost nothing and I can sell them at full price in England. I shall be a millionaire. And then the climate. I feel years younger already. I can run it as a health resort. The good sanatorium might be worth 20,000 a year. Of course, I shall have to let a few people in on the secret. The first thing is to get that lion shot. The first thing is to get the lion shot. Uncle Andrew wanted the creative power that he saw going on around him. He wanted to capitalize on this ability to take broken things and repair them, to to make new life where there was no life, but he wanted nothing to do with the lion. He wanted nothing to do with the source of that power. And there's some parallels between this story and the response of the 5,000 after being fed by Jesus, which is what we'll look at today in Luke 9. So Jesus had given his disciples authority to go out and cast out demons and to heal and sent them out to minister. And in Luke 9, uh, starting in verse 10, we have um, the account. It says, on their return, the return from being sent out, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces." So you know, if you've hung around church for any length of time, especially if you've hung around as a kid, you've heard this story, you, you know it. It's you know, great fodder for VBS and Sunday schools. And you know, if you go to John's rendition, he actually says that, that that lunch, the five loaves and two fish was actually provided by a little boy and, and so that just makes more the appeal to the young. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's just a simple Sunday school story that you say, wow, isn't Jesus cool? But it's actually really packed with a lot of important, deeper lessons. It tells us about a lot about who Jesus is and who we are. And one of the first things we see in this story is the compassion of the Lord. Jesus wanted to get away with his disciples, to debrief with them and to hear about their ministry experience, and to allow them to get refreshed and actually to get some much-needed refreshment himself. So Jesus had compassion on his disciples and on their needs. But as they were going, trying to slip away, somebody spotted them and, and spread the news that, hey, Jesus is here. And the next thing you know, he's surrounded by this crowd of thousands of people. I mean, Luke says 5,000 men, but there were probably women and children mixed in there. So fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people thronging around Jesus. It was just a huge crowd. And, you know, if it were me right about then, I'd be kind of asking them if they didn't have homes to go to or, or maybe their mother was calling or you know, if I had the ability to multiply things like Jesus could, maybe I'd be multiplying biting flies or bees or something you know, to encourage them to go elsewhere. Um, you know, I'd be thinking, can't we just have a few hours of, of peace and quiet for ourselves? But Jesus' response is different. Instead of shooing the crowd away, Luke says, Jesus welcomed them. And spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus and his disciples needed a break badly, but he had compassion on the crowd. And sacrificed his own needs in order to welcome them and to heal them and to teach them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus responded to the crowd with compassion then you know it'd be easy to say, yeah, okay, I guess we, we have to do this because they're here, but I don't think that was Jesus' attitude at all. I think it was a sincere, welcoming love. You know, that's what drew the crowds to him, is Jesus sincerely loved them. And and his compassion didn't end there. You know, as the day wore on and the, the disciples by that time were, were really ready to be done, um, human compassion was totally exhausted at that point. And um, they were ready to throw in the towel. So they urged Jesus to, you know, why don't you send the crowd away? Um, and, and I would have been just the same. And I'm guessing every one of us would have been in that position. But the compassion of Jesus hadn't been exhausted yet. I mean, he was concerned about the physical needs of the crowd. So he told his disciples to feed them. Notice whose idea it is. I mean, this picture of God as this old grouch, unconcerned about us, we have to twist his arm and badger him with prayer and maybe promise to make some sacrifice to get him to notice our needs. But it's quite the opposite, it, it's Jesus who sees the need for the, the people, it's his idea, he initiated it, um, he, was, he is intimately aware of what we need. And even when human compassion is exhausted, you know, the disciples were done, they didn't want to feed these guys. But Jesus is still there taking initiative to offer the most appropriate kind of help. And you may say, okay, that's all nice in the Bible, but what about day to day when I feel like the heavens are brass and on top of that, you know, I've never had bread multiplied to meet my needs. And like, yeah, I know, I, I lived there too. You know, I've certainly seen the Lord's provision in some significant ways, but there's also times when I wasn't really sure whether he was going to come through. And there have been times when it felt really hard to keep going. But the fact is, we're all still going. We're all still here. We're all still standing. Um, I can't point to a single time when the Lord failed me. Uh, he's, He's tried me. He's stretched me. He's driven me to rely on him more, but he's never failed me. And I think if we're all here, he's never failed us. He has compassion on us. He wants to meet our needs, but sometimes what we really need is to be stretched. Sometimes what we think we need is not what he knows we need most. And speaking of stretching, Jesus' proposal to the disciples was, you give them something to eat. Was Jesus just transferring his burden from himself to the disciples of, hey, I can't handle this. You guys figure it out. Of course not. We know it was Jesus who multiplied the food. But he wants us to engage in ministry with him. Um, He wants us to engage in his care for the needs of others. God wants us to help advance his kingdom in the world around us and participate in that. Not because he needs us but because we need him, because it's good for us to work with him. So the disciples heard the message like you and I probably would. Um, Jesus expects us to come up with food for, you know, who knows how many, 10, 15,000 people. There's no way, but, you know, they're, they're good sports. They say, okay, let's, let's go see what we can drum up. You know, so they go out and canvass the crowd and come back with five loaves and two fish. Nowhere near enough. So humanly speaking, Jesus' request to them was impossible. He had asked them to do the impossible. And Jesus knew that. He knew they didn't have the resources to feed the crowd. So why did he ask them to do what he knew they couldn't do? Why would Jesus give them an impossible task? Because it isn't impossible. He he knew he was sufficient. He knew, and he wanted them to learn that. He wanted them to see that. We need to see that. So the truth is that we're never sufficient for what he calls us to, even if we think we are. You know, Even the things we think we can handle, we're only using the gifts he's given us. He's the one who's always sufficient. He asks us to bring the little bit that we have, the, the five loaves and the two fish, and he makes it enough. They brought all they had and gave it to the Lord. And he took what they had and fed thousands with it. He took their not enough and made it honestly more than enough, right? Everybody ate all they wanted, and there was literally twelve basketfuls left over. Jesus is more than sufficient. He's abundant. Notice, too, the faith that the disciples had in this, and kind of look at that, you know, just bumbling around. But their search for food. By human means, this maybe isn't the biggest picture of faith, but if Jesus told me to have people sit down in groups of 50 to get ready for a picnic, and all I had was five loaves and two fish, I think I would have said, no way, I'm not going to embarrass myself in front of this crowd. You know, what are we going to offer them? Um, I can't possibly meet this need. And then Jesus started breaking the loaves and the fish um, as if they were going to be enough to feed the crowd. And... I have no idea when the bread and the fish multiplied, but I suspect the disciples went out thinking, you yeah, know, this is a joke. We're going to like hand out food to a couple people and then this whole thing is going to blow up. But the disciples followed Jesus' instructions by faith. And that simple act was actually just a huge expression of faith on their part. And, and allowed Jesus to do what he was doing. So what about the five loaves and the two fish? Did Jesus need them to feed the crowd? I don't think so. I mean, he made everything that is out of nothing, right? And and even the, the multiplying of the loaves and the fish, I mean, he was basically creating something, physical substance out of air, out of nothing. Um, I mean, it can... Maybe rationalize chemically how that might happen, but it it, it was incredible. He made it out of thin air. So could he not have created lunch for everybody out of thin air? And yes, I think he could have. But he wanted the disciples to participate in meeting the need. So he took what they had, took their nowhere near enough, and made it more than enough. I think of the the poor widow that Jesus saw bringing her tithe into the temple. Not her tithe, she, she literally gave everything she had. Her two small copper coins and Jesus pointed it out and said that she had given more than anybody else because she gave all that she had. And I think that's what Jesus asked for from us. All we have. Even though it's very little, even though it's not enough, even though it seems hopelessly insignificant, with him it's sufficient. With him it's enough. And that's that's the way heavenly math works. I mean, my little plus Jesus is more than enough. It's, it's everything that's needed. I think of Peter and John as they were entering the temple after the resurrection. They met a man who was born lame, who was begging for money. And Peter said... Silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Silver and gold, I do not have. Food for thousands, I do not have. Whatever Jesus is calling you to do, you do not have. But in the name of Jesus, he provides what's needed and more. The Lord doesn't call us just to do what we're able to do, just to do what we're comfortable doing. He calls us to do what He is able to do through us, what He wants to do. Joanna and I are, are pretty capable people. We have some achievements that we could point to, but I'm convinced that even those achievements are gifts from God. You know, We didn't create our abilities, our, our intellect. but God has set things up to push us to the point where we're totally out of our depth, And particularly for us, it's been in parenting. God has pushed us to the point where we don't have enough and where we feel like the poor widow bringing our two small copper coins and realizing how dreadfully insufficient we are um, and how much we need him to be sufficient. And I think that's exactly where he wants us to be. The fact that any expectation I have of my sufficiency, it's just an illusion. God's the only one who's sufficient to meet needs, and He's far more than sufficient. So clinging to Him in desperation is actually a really healthy place to be, even though we hate to admit that, but I think that is really where He wants us, just just desperately clinging to Him, that He's our sufficiency. So. If you feel a call to do something, feel like God's prompting your heart to do something, and are convinced that it can't be God because there's no way you could do it, I think we might need to think again. Um, I'm I'm convinced that that's exactly what he likes to do, to ask us to do what's impossible and then show himself strong through us. Whether it's feeding 5,000 people with nothing but five loaves and two fish, um, he provides what's lacking. Or maybe you've started down to follow his call and then realize that the task was way too big for you, which kind of where we ended up with in parenting. It's like, don't assume you heard incorrectly. He may just be wanting to show you how sufficient he is, even when you're not. So, In the kingdom of God, the king wants us to bring our best, to whatever task he's called us to, but he fills in what's lacking with limitless supply and sufficiency. So Luke ends his account with the disciples picking up these 12 baskets of leftovers. But John goes into additional details about the event and the response to it in chapter six. John says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, the feeding so many people, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I don't know how he got away that that time, but he did. Um, but Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom where he's king. But when he sensed that the people were trying to make him a king on earth, he retreated. Jesus took time to pray He sent his disciples across the lake ahead of him, and that led to Jesus walking on water. You'll remember this story that immediately follows this event. So the next morning, when the crowd realized Jesus wasn't there anymore, his disciples weren't there anymore, they went looking for him, and they found him on the other side of the lake. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he's calling them out. He's saying, look, you guys didn't come looking for me because you want to hear more about the kingdom of God. You came looking for me because you like the free meal. Um, And then he goes on. He tells them, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal, And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. can, Can you imagine the audacity? Just the day before. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They, they were claiming, you know, the prophet is amongst us. It's a great miracle. Now they chase him down and they want another sign. And in fact, they even prompt him, hey, you know, God fed us in the wilderness for 40 years. How about, you know, some more free food? You know, that was, that was a good, good deal. Um, and give us our daily bread every day and maybe we'll believe in you. In John's account, Jesus has an extended discussion with them then about Him being the bread of life. Really meaning that we need Him. Not It's not stuff that we need. We need Him. We should desire Him above all else. He's not just a way to get stuff. And then John goes on, So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said... Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? When many of his disciples heard this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because we've already said, the Lord is compassionate and wants to bless us abundantly. But he knows there's a trap in there for us as well. We're prone to want the gift rather than the giver. We like the benefits of the kingdom but we're not so thrilled about the king. It's like Uncle Andrew who wanted the wonders of Narnia, the creative power that was going on there, but he wanted to kill the lion who was the source of that power. I think what we really want is a genie, not a king. We want to be able to have whatever we want and whatever we think we need. The challenge is pe- people following Jesus because of what we can get can look a lot like people who are following Jesus as their king. These disciples who left, they were people who traveled to hear him speak. The, the, the 5,000 people, they came from somewhere. They sat with him all day listening to him preach, getting hungry. Um, They didn't go away. John called them disciples. But when Jesus started talking about being from heaven and proposing that he should be the focus of their lives even more than their daily bread, they said, yeah, not so much. We'll go elsewhere. Contrast that with what we hear from the 12 apostles, which is continuing on in that exact same account. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wake and I have referenced that passage a lot recently, just because it's so powerful and so fitting. It just shows what the heart of a true Christ follower is the crowds were following Jesus because he was a source of good things. He's a source of healing. He's a source of food. He's a source of deliverance. Even a source of good teaching and godly wisdom. He's an interesting and entertaining speaker. I, I, I don't know why all they thronged around him. You know, they, they felt the love. It was just a great place to be. But when the teachings got hard, when Jesus called them to hard things, the crowd moved on. Because Jesus was only a source of what they wanted. They, they thought there were other sources. They were wrong, but, but to them he was a source. The disciples stayed with Jesus because he was the source of eternal life. He's the only way back to the Father. He's the source of all that's really good, of all that's really worth pursuing. So the, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ, And the great event at the culmination of time is the wedding feast of the Lamb, when the bride comes forth to meet her husband, all arrayed in white. And there are really profound parallels between human marriage and our relationship to Jesus. Our marriage to Jesus is obviously an unequal marriage. It's the Lord of all, fabulous wealth, fabulous power, Marrying a servant who brings nothing of value to the relationship. And in a human marriage with that kind of mismatch, don't we typically question, did she marry him for his money? Did she marry for love or for what she could get? Isn't that the question? And doesn't it make us feel much better when we see evidence of real love, even in a mismatch like that, when there's real devotion and not just selfish maneuvering for personal gain. But isn't that what we're talking about here with Jesus? The the crowds in Luke 9 wanted Jesus for what he could give give them. And the prosperity doctrine appeals to kind of that same mindset. Come to Jesus for what you can get. It says, come to Jesus and if you have enough faith, you can have everything you want. Come to Jesus and you can have health. You can have wealth. Things will go your way. Come to Jesus and have your every desire filled. In other words, Jesus is kind of a wonderful accessory to my life. You know, the genie in the bottle that I can ask and he'll give me whatever I want. I want. You know, he will enable you to achieve your goals. He'll enable you to do whatever makes you happy. And all of that is true in a sense. Jesus is compassionate, as we've already said. Jesus is generous. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to meet our desires, even, and He's able to do that. I mean, it, He can feed 5,000 people with a handful of loaves and fish, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's nothing to Him. But just a few verses after the, that account of the feeding, Luke gives Jesus' words about coming to Him. And we'll get into this more as we continue through Luke 9. But Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So the prosperity doctrine, the the prosperity gospel, the crowd that followed Jesus said, come to Jesus and gain the whole world. Marry Jesus for what you can get. And Jesus said, no, that's, that's putting the emphasis in the wrong place. Marry me for true love. Marry me because you want me more than anything else in the world. Come to me because you want me, you want my love more than life itself. Because you want me so much, you're willing to deny yourself. Come to me because you want me so much, you're willing to take up your cross and walk to calvary with me. Die to all those other things because they're worth nothing in comparison to me. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? die to those things just like a faithful bride dies to all other potential lovers and gives herself completely to her husband. Come to Jesus as the only source of the words of eternal life, as the only source of life itself. And you'll find true life. Since whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus is the source of all good things. In the wedding of the Lamb is a marriage of true love, not a marriage for what we can get, not a marriage for for money. So what if we waver? You know, we struggle. What if sometimes we don't want Jesus more than anything else? You know, I think that's the true human condition. We constantly fight with that, and and Jesus knew that. I think it's part of why He was not doing feeding crowds all the time. Um, so look look at Peter as an example. He announced, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But not long after that, at Jesus' trial, Peter denied even knowing him to save his earthly life. But then later, Peter, after Jesus' resurrection, Peter boldly put his life at risk to preach to the crowds at Pentecost and condemning the Jewish leaders for killing God's son. But then afterwards Peter went back the other way and wouldn't associate with Gentile believers when the Jewish believers came around for fear that they would disapprove of, of him hanging out with the Gentiles. So, disobedience to Christ there to save his own reputation. But then, after Paul confronted him with the truth, um, you know, he, he went back to, to relating to the, the Gentile believers, and ultimately, Peter did lay down his life for Christ. Um, gave up his life to gain an eternal reward. So I don't, I don't mean to condemn Peter for being back and forth. I think Peter just, if Peter did it, so do we. You know, we, we struggle. Um, he's just a good example of what it means to follow Jesus. Our battle with our flesh um, rages. It, it's easy to focus on stuff, and that's often where the true battle is. And sometimes we win and sometimes we stumble. Sometimes our hearts are full of love for Jesus, and sometimes they're cold, honestly. So, how do we fan flames of love for Jesus? Um, And I, sorry, I haven't developed this a whole lot, but I think it can really come by starting to start by asking Him to reveal Himself to us to help us to fall in love with him. He wants us to fall in love with him. I think if we ask him to reveal himself to us, he will. And a lot of places where he does that is in Scripture. Read about him. Not not just about Jesus, not just the Gospels, but read the whole Bible and what it tells us about about God. And then meditate on it. And let your imagination run. You know, it, It's easy for us to say, Oh yeah, I know that. I, I know God loves me. I know God is all-powerful, whatever. But, think about what does that mean? You know, what, what does that look like? How has that played out in the world around me? You know, and just let your imagination run with the awesomeness of God. And and I don't think the human imagination can capture the extent of how awesome God is. So, you know, if your imagination runs, I don't think you will exceed the awesomeness of God, uh, as long as it's based on, on scripture as a foundation um yeah the disappointments and the heartbreaks of stuff we, we also need to think about stuff and 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 just how disappointing it is you know this thing that we want now, think of the things you have wanted and given yourself for and how quickly they break and how quickly they rust and how quickly relationships uh, are broken with heartbreaks and how ultimately it's all going to return to dust. Jesus is so much more precious than anything we could desire. He's a generous giver of all good things and so much better than all the good things He gives. He gives us all good things, but He is so much better than that. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, you are wonderful. You are ultimately the desire of our hearts. There is nothing um, more valuable, more delightful, more wonderful than you. And God, there's, there's nothing on this earth that we could give in exchange for you and for eternal life with you. Lord, captivate our hearts. Help us to see you for who you are. Lord, may we love you. Not for what we get from you, although yeah, with eternal life and all the ways you bless us, who wouldn't love you for those things? But, Lord, may we love you for you and delight in you and delight to know you um, as as our husband, as our lover. Um, Lord, develop that in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.